The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The SEC brought a case against Facebook in 2019 that related to its disclosures and dealing with describing risks as a hypothetical, in fact, something had occurred. But again, there it dealt with, you know, user data having in fact been misused as opposed to being something more around social policy. You know, I'm hard pressed to believe that with the 2019 case that the SEC would bring a case here as well. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 28th, 2021. Today, we're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the online information ecosystem. And we're talking about a subject that doesn't come up much on the Lawfare podcast, the Securities and Exchange Commission. Facebook whistleblower Frances Haugen has made waves with her congressional testimony and the many damaging news stories being reported about Facebook based on the documents she released. But before those documents became the Facebook Papers, Haugen also handed them to the SEC as part of a whistleblower complaint against the company. So we thought we should dig in to what that actually means. What's the likelihood that Haugen's SEC filings turn into an investigation into the company? Should Facebook be worried? Evelyn Duick and I discussed these questions with Jacob Frankel, who spent years at the SEC and is now the Chair of Government Investigations and Securities Enforcement at the law firm Dickinson Wright. He explained how to understand the SEC's role in cases like these, why whistleblowers like Haugen file complaints with the SEC, and why he thinks it's unlikely that the agency will investigate Facebook based on Haugen's disclosures. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 28th, the SEC and the Facebook Papers. I think uh, it would be useful for our listeners to get a bit of background from you so that we know the perspective that you're coming from as we're talking about this today. So you were a senior counsel at the SEC's Division of Enforcement, the Security and Exchange Commission, which is what we'll be talking about today. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what that role involved in your experience. With that role involved, and I spent almost 10 years at the SEC in its enforcement division, and that was from about 20 some odd years ago to, to 30 odd years ago. Uh, so I've been practicing the SEC enforcement space now for 33 years. Um, it really involves conducting investigations into possible violations of the federal securities laws. And then upon finding those violations, or then what we would do within the Division of Enforcement, and that's the practice still today, is to prepare a, an action memorandum to the Securities and Exchange Commission itself, I'm referring to the five commissioners appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. And 
the commission then considers those allegations and then authorizes an enforcement action, which many enforcement actions actually settle. And the investigative process includes issuing subpoenas for records, taking investigative testimony. And that was the better part of my nine and a half years at the SEC, the last year and a half of which also included being on assignment to be a federal criminal prosecutor, public corruption and securities with as high profile as the Facebook issue is now. I was with one of the independent councils. So that in and of itself was rather high profile engagement as a federal prosecutor. So that gives you an idea as to what I did, not only within the SEC, but also within uh, the federal government, having been a federal prosecutor as well. So I want to start with a pretty basic question, which is, why are we talking about Facebook and the SEC in the same conversation? And I think this is probably obvious to you, but maybe not obvious for a lot of our listeners. Frances Haugen's testimony and the documents that she's provided to the press have generated a lot of discussion and criticism of Facebook. Congress is really taking interest. I think there's a lot of debate over whether or not this will lead to tech regulation. But the SEC's role is, of course, separate from that. So what is the role of the SEC in this Facebook paper story? Well, there are actually two questions there. And that is, why is why would the SEC have any interest in Facebook at all? And then why would it have an interest in the Facebook story itself? The interest in Facebook goes to the fact that Facebook is a public company. It is a company with securities that are registered with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission. Those securities are traded on the U.S. capital markets. And the SEC is the federal regulator with responsibility for all of the capital markets and in turn has jurisdiction over companies that are that have securities registered with the SEC and trade in the US capital markets. So that's the basis for the SEC having what I'll call jurisdiction in the broadest sense over Facebook. Now that said you know, we have to go back to what does the SEC do? The SEC has civil regulatory enforcement jurisdiction over the federal securities laws. In other words, if Facebook were to somehow violate a law that is beyond the scope of the body of federal securities laws, I don't want to get too granular here, but typically what we're talking about are the Securities Act of 1933 the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, and in particular, when you're talking about public companies, the requirements that are imposed on them, both with respect to disclosures and also with respect to activity in the securities, maintenance of records and accounts, and the reporting of that information, that is how the SEC would have jurisdiction more specifically over Facebook as well as any other public company, whether high profile or low profile. That then brings us to, you know, why the interest in the whistleblower allegations. And that really, I think, becomes, you know, a subject of a broader discussion because the SEC, when there are allegations brought to the SEC's attention, you know, will look to see whether those allegations may or may not implicate 
violations of the federal securities laws. Now, if I'm starting to sound repetitive, I'm being repetitive for a reason, because when you start talking about, you know, political issues or issues that go beyond the federal securities laws, then in practicality, the SEC may not have enforcement jurisdiction unless the allegations somehow impact the disclosures that the company has made publicly. And the disclosures that the company has made publicly, we're now talking about the public filings that the company has made that are available on the SEC's website, that are available on the Facebook website. And really what they boil down to is a very simple concept. And that is that the presumption is that investors make investment decisions based on a company's performance, but as well, the company's disclosures. And that is really the subject of the SEC's jurisdiction over Facebook. So to the extent that we're talking about cyber disclosures, which is an issue that has been the subject of SEC guidance, both in 2011 and 2018, or more recently, the SEC having brought a case in 2019 against Facebook in connection with Cambridge Analytica, where the SEC alleged that Facebook had made misleading disclosures about the risk of misuse of its user data, those are examples of where the SEC would and could take interest. So I think hopefully that sets the stage for our discussion about SEC interest in Facebook and why um, a whistleblower might go to the SEC with the hope that the SEC would, would take interest in an allegation because the SEC, unlike the Federal Trade Commission, has a whistleblower program that pays bounties. I know that's somewhere you would like, I know we will, we will be going in the discussion. Yeah, no, absolutely. We want to cover all of that. That's fantastic. Scene setting, thank you. You know, I'm reading a lot of this news at the moment and, you know, there's sort of this, we generally talk about the SEC and the fact that this whistleblowing has happened, but I think it's really, really useful to get specific with what we're talking about here. And I think later we really want to dig into what exactly the specific claims are in your opinion on whether they will justify an investigation. But before we do that, I think probably the best way to approach this would be to sort of walk through chronological what a typical whistleblower case might look like at the SEC. So maybe starting at the very beginning, you know, what is whistleblowing? So what kind of protections are there for a whistleblower if they choose to report something to the SEC? Are they sort of automatic? And how relevant are they here? Because uh, the whistleblower, Francis Hogan, uh, no longer works for Facebook. So to the extent that there are sort of anti-retaliation protections or something along those lines, what would they protect in this case? I think we can cover that in about the next 90 minutes, but <laughs> I say that I say that in jest. Yeah, no, I'm sure we could. Maybe just the, the elevator version no, no, would be no, great. I, I <laughs> but let, let, me, let me see if I can take that apart, because I think the fundamental issue, even before we get to how does a whistleblower complaint to the SEC work its way through the agency, is the question of whether the SEC even has jurisdiction here. Because to the extent that what we're really talking about here is 
the societal impact of the company's products and sort of the philosophical priorities of the company, those are not disclosure items for the SEC. Now, in my view, some of the concerns may well be within the jurisdiction of the Federal Trade Commission, because the Federal Trade Commission in our system is really the arbiter of what is enforceable in the area of privacy. And under its act, you know, the Federal Trade Commission, you know, has jurisdiction to enforce conduct that somehow is violative of a prohibition against unfair or deceptive practices in the marketplace, where that arguably can bring you more into what I'll call a you know, political regime or a societal impact analysis. But the Federal Trade Commission does not have a bounty program. They'll be happy to take complaints. So fundamental to what we're talking about here is, you know, people are going to the SEC with complaints about public companies, regardless of whether they do or do not constitute potential violations of the federal securities laws. So I'm about to get to your question, which is, how does the whistleblower complaint process work? And I both have brought whistleblower claims to the SEC and have defended clients who've been the subject of whistleblower claims. But to me, the fundamental issue is this really focuses on should it be at the SEC in the first place? And is there even a case to be made for there being a potential violation of the federal securities laws? Because you would then have to find some corporate disclosure by the company that would have been rendered false by the discovery of this information, or that there was an affirmative disclosure obligation that has been violated, even in the area of you know cyber uh, disclosures, which we talked about briefly a moment ago. But what you're really seeing here, in my view, is an effort to go to the agency that has the ability to pay bounties, and we'll talk about that in a moment, and then using the public venue, using the platform of congressional interest in companies such as Facebook to try to goad the SEC into bringing a case where realistically, there probably is no violation of federal securities laws. And when I say that, that does not mean there isn't a real societal interest, congressional interest, or issue for broader consideration. You're not asking me to opine politically or socially. I'm focusing just on whether there's a violation of federal securities laws. I do not think there is. But nevertheless, there has been a complaint filed or a whistleblower complaint filed with the Securities Exchange Commission. The way that is done typically is a whistleblower, often through an attorney, will file what is called a TCR, an actual written report with the Office of the Whistleblower at the Securities Exchange Commission. The Office of the Whistleblower will conduct its own triage of the allegations that have been presented and make a real preliminary assessment as to whether there appear to be violations of federal securities laws. The 
office of the whistleblower is not the one that's conducting the investigation that would ultimately result in an enforcement action such as the one that was, that the SEC brought two years ago. What the office of the whistleblower will do will, will be to take its findings and hand them off to the Division of Enforcement, in this case, probably a unit that would have expertise in cyber. And then the SEC would conduct, the Enforcement Division would conduct an investigation. Now, let me stress, I'm going to quickly sort of run through the hypothetical scenario of an investigation and it resulting in a potential whistleblower award. But again, that, that's against the backdrop of my, as I indicated, my belief that there is no basis for one to issue because I don't, nothing that I've read or seen suggests a violation of federal securities laws. But assuming that the enforcement division takes investigative testimony, subpoenas records, looks at the company's you know, disclosures, matches up uh, the allegations, the information it receives against the company's disclosures and find that, finds that there's a violation of the federal securities laws, at that point, the enforcement division, they're not going to run out and bring a case. They're going to give Facebook the opportunity to persuade the enforcement division um, in what is called a Wells submission, W-E-L-L-S, and I'm not going to get into the history of why it's called that, uh, but a Wells submission to persuade the SEC why not to bring the case. And that's on the assumption that the enforcement division has determined that there is a basis or there appears to be a basis for doing so. Assuming further that ultimately the commission were to authorize an enforcement action, meaning the five commissioners allow the enforcement division to bring a case, then typically there is a negotiation between a major corporation and the SEC to try to resolve the case. Now, certainly a company like Facebook, or for that matter, I've spent the better part of my morning today working on a submission and litigation uh, that I have for a client company against the SEC. So a company certainly, as well as an individual, can litigate ultimately to a verdict in front of a United States District Court judge or in front of a SEC administrative law judge and could be absolved in a full legal proceeding. However, most companies tend to settle allegations with the SEC. So once a case settles, now it comes back to, is in your question about a whistleblower, is a whistleblower entitled to a monetary award. And that is really why, again, as we were discussing, I believe that this matter is at the SEC, not at the FTC. There is eligibility for an award if a whistleblower brings original information, basically new information, information that the SEC would not otherwise be able to glean just by, you know, reading on its face, the company's filings or or reading lawsuits or reading the newspaper. But basically, it's information that really informs and enables development of an SEC investigation. And assuming, and I keep coming back to the word assuming because that's critical here, assuming that a whistleblower brings original information that information is material to the investigation. That information ultimately is material to the outcome that enables 
the SEC to obtain a monetary penalty, a fine in excess of $1 million, then the whistleblower is entitled by law to anywhere between 10% and 30% of the monetary penalty that the SEC obtains. So that's the financial incentive. So when you read about you know the, the SEC's exorbitant whistleblower awards, and I think the total SEC whistleblower awards this year in the history of the program have now exceeded, I think, a billion dollars. I mean, so it's an exorbitant sum. And that's, you know, and that's in the aggregate. But so hypothetically, if someone were to bring original information and it results in a whistleblower award, so let's say, let's, you know, let's use the, for a moment, even the hypothetical of, you know, the previous SEC case in which Facebook had paid a hundred million, one hundred million dollars to settle the charges. That was the one relating to Cambridge Analytica and misleading disclosures regarding the risk of misuse of of user data. You know, if there was, and I I candidly do not recall if there was a whistleblower involved in that matter, that whistleblower could have received anywhere from ten million to thirty million dollars for having brought the whistleblower claim. So that's really, and, but even, you know, because again, you asked me to explain the process, but at the end of the process, after the SEC has brought the case, has settled the case, then there is an assessment as to whether the person did in fact bring original information. Was that material? Were there multiple people who brought information and are they sharing in that whistleblower claim? So it is not automatic. It is not immediate. And there has been litigation of whether people are or not or have been improperly denied access to or part of a whistleblower award. So hopefully that explains the SEC's whistleblower process and one that, as you could tell by the way I've described it, could take years you know, to run its course from the initial presenting of the claim to the SEC bringing the case and ultimately the issuance of an award. And so there's also been discussion of Helgen filing with the SEC in order to receive whistleblower protection. Can you talk a little bit about that just to give us a sense of what kind of protection would be offered? And then we can move on to discussing the actual substance of her complaints. Sure. I mean, in, in, in short, there's a whistleblower statute that prevents retaliation. And, you know, that, that issue went up to the United States Supreme Court on, you know, on the issue of whether somebody who only reports internally is entitled to the, the protection. And in fact, the United States Supreme Court uh, decided, I think it was three years ago, that there actually has to be a claim filed with, you know, with the SEC to be entitled to, you know, to the whistleblower protection under the whistleblower statute. You know, I and many of my colleagues cringed at that decision by the Supreme Court because, in my mind, that undermined corporate compliance programs because companies, you know, have, you know, ever since the SEC um, implemented its whistleblower statute and even before, were trying to encourage people to report violations internally so that they could be dealt with internally not to the exclusion of there being a possible bio- violation, but once the United States Supreme Court 
ruled as it did, the end result was that it pretty much said, if you don't go to the SEC, you're not entitled to protection under that statute. Having said that, that's not to the exclusion of potential state statutes that could offer, you know, that could offer protection. But that's the rationale for going to the SEC because there is a federal law that prohibits retaliation. On the other hand, because she had resigned from the company, the likely bases for retaliation are few. Granted, we could think of what they could be. I mean, those could be anything ranging from criminal prosecution or seeking criminal prosecution for taking corporate information, as well as, you know, civil litigation. But having said that, you know, whether it's Facebook or or any other company, the likelihood of going down either of those routes, I think, would meet with such public blowback, such distaste in, in, in the court of public opinion, that I think we're unlikely to see that. Yeah, but nevertheless, there is a federal statute that provides protection. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me. And it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep 
acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So let's then turn to the substance of the complaints. There are eight of them, and I think we're, we're going to oversimplify here so we can move through them in a, in a timely way. But I think we can sort of put them into a few buckets. And the first bucket might be called the sort of bucket of Facebook, you know, knew that there was bad stuff on its platform, but didn't put adequate systems in place to deal with it. So this would include the complaints that Facebook misled investors and the public about its role perpetuating misinformation and extreme relating to the 2020 election on January 6th that had a, a whitelist for influential users and celebrities, so they were exempted from content takedowns, that it misled investors in the public about its transparency reporting on how effective it was at removing hate speech, and we can go on. So assuming for the sake of argument right now that Facebook statements actually were misleading, is that the kind of thing that the SEC would be interested in, in your view? Probably the answer to, to many of the questions are going to be maybe. And the reason I say that is because what we would have to do is the fact about knowing about bad stuff alone, you know, it would not implicate federal securities laws. To me, the question will be, we would have to look at specifically what was said and then go look at the company's actual disclosures and see if any of the disclosures were misleading as you compare what was said to the reality. Now, the reason we have to, I, I, I stress the maybe, and I think a lot of these answers are going to be the unsatisfactory maybe, is because 
you know, corporate securities lawyers are adept at being both precise and imprecise in their disclosures because it's impossible. It is absolutely impossible to predict every potential risk or eventuality. You know, even in the previous case that the SEC brought against Facebook, and this is really true in, in most disclosure cases, you know, the language that the SEC typically uses is something along the lines of making sure they have procedures that are designed to make disclosures that are accurate in all material respects and not just describing some hypothetical risk when, in fact, that risk has, has actually occurred. But again, it's not has described with perfection or with precision. It's that are accurate in all material respects. And often, you know, I'm going to digress briefly, but I think it's a really important point as well, is the word I'm going to keep using and I have used is material. And, you know, that in and of itself is a term that has, you know, that has worked its way up to the United States Supreme Court. And basically, materiality is, you know, something that's important to an investor in making a decision as to whether to invest in the company. So there are a lot of factors that go into this. So to take your actual question apart, the knowing bad stuff alone would not get us there. The fact that it related to anything relating to the election, conduct after the election, not enough to give rise to a violation. Once you start adding the phrase, and I think the phrase you used was having adequate systems, the issue of adequate systems that would be of interest to the SEC would go to the company's disclosure controls and procedures that relate to its cyber disclosures and also as relating to its actual narrative disclosures that go into its public filings. So I suspect you're going to continue just being a fantastic lawyer and keep answering maybe, but... Well, well, I'll give you a more definitive answer if I can give you one. The only reason I say what I say is because, you know, it's my belief from everything that I've heard and read that there is no SEC case to be brought here. And even if there might marginally be one, and I stress the word marginally because somehow, whether it's some other good lawyer who is contorting facts to suggest that maybe there is a disclosure violation. And the fact is, the SEC brought a case against Facebook in 2019 that related to its disclosures and dealing with describing risks as a hypothetical, in fact, something had occurred. So you know once that happens. But again, there it dealt with you know user data having, in fact, been misused, as opposed to being something more around social policy. You know, I'm hard pressed to believe that with the 2019 case that the SEC would bring a case here as well. So I think that's the reason for maybe, but you're welcome to challenge me and I may be able to give you a more more definitive answer that will be a, a more precise yes or no. 
No, I mean, I didn't mean to cast shade on the, the answer, maybe, but I mean, I'm kind of glad I did, because that was a bit more of a, uh, a fiery answer, which is great. And I mean, I think that's been pretty definitive, but I think it's also important for our listeners to sort of maybe keep going through the rest of the, the buckets of claims, just so that we're clear uh, what they are and whether you still agree that they're not going to get us over the line. So I think the second bucket of claims might be not only that they knew that they that Facebook knew that there was harmful content on its platform and didn't do enough to mitigate that, but that there are in certain cases areas in which they maybe exacerbated those harms or knew of very direct harms to users and didn't do anything about it. So here I think we might put things like the claims around Facebook knowing that it was harming teenagers' mental and physical health in terms of driving them towards uh, eating disorder content in particular, or claims around it in its algorithms amplifying, um, not merely just not not picking up and, and, and getting rid of, but amplifying things like polarizing content and hate speech in the interest of keeping users on the site and increasing its advertising revenue, which to me strikes me as a little bit of an interesting claim to, to bring to the SEC, where it's, you know, the, the claim seems to be Facebook is prioritizing profit over safety, which is that a claim that the SEC would be interested in for the purposes of misleading shareholders and investors? I think you said something like the was whether this would change investor behavior. So does that kind of, you know, knowledge that that these problems were there and the added thing of, you know, exacerbating those harms, does that change anything in your calculus? The first part of my answer is pick up the phone and call the Federal Trade Commission, which has responsibility for unfair and deceptive acts and practices that, that affect commerce. The second part to the answer is, you know, I think everything can be tied to impacting profits. I mean, you know, that's just the nature of of a public company. You know, that may be grounds for a a derivative claim, you know, a civil claim by shareholders. I mean, a lot of companies have, you know, shareholders who divest of a company because of philosophical positions taken by by those companies that are, that are different than, you know, the individual shareholders or investors uh, philosophies. But my answer to that is no, it does not move me off the maybe. And my answer really is call the FTC, not the SEC. All right. So there's one last complaint, which uh, I think I have seen being discussed as potentially the one that is the most compelling in front of the ST, excuse me, the SEC. That's a Freudian slip right there. Um, and so this that's the complaint that Facebook misled investors and advertisers about shrinking user bases in, in important demographics. So essentially that it was losing teenage users, declining content production, uh, the true number of recipients of advertising. So basically arguing that they were not forthcoming about the fact that their ad business was declining. And I have certainly seen people argue, you know, that this is an example of Facebook just not being truthful with investors and with the public about what their product looks like in terms of whether it's going to, you know, be continuingly popular. Is that a better claim? Or I guess two questions. One is whether, is that a better claim that Facebook is representing the value of its core product, which is advertising? And even if it's a better claim, does that get us across the line? I'll go so far as to say that's probably the best claim, not just the better claim. But again, we come back to what are the company's disclosures? And we have to then talk about 
what does an SEC public filing look like? So what what we're really now talking about are forward-looking statements. What could happen in the future? And companies, whenever they're making forward-looking statements, projecting what is likely to happen in the future, build in caveats, you know, that take up more space than the disclosure itself. And risk factor disclosures, you know, it's almost as if there is a disclaimer as to any potential eventuality that, that any group of lawyers can come up with. I mean, you know, risk factor disclosures, you know, sometimes are larger than the substance of a filing document itself. So that brings us back to where we were at the, at the beginning in terms of, okay, so if there is the potentiality of a decreased user base, decreased advertising revenue, the question then is we now have to look at the actual disclosures that the company has made, particularly around its projections relating to those disclosures. So we're back to the, this is probably the most viable of the bucket of allegations or the most viable allegation in the bucket, I should say. But at the same time, then we were going to have to get into the specifics, take the specific allegation, marry that up against the disclosure, check that against the company's disclaimers and risk factors as to, for example, you know, user, and again, I've, I've not looked, gone back to look at what kinds of disclaimers Facebook made, but it would simply say, you know, user preferences could change, you know, advertisers could determine for various reasons to, you know, to shift their advertising preferences from our social media platform to other social media. You know, a broad general disclaimer, such as the one that I just raised, may be sufficient to defeat that allegation. But having said that, within the bucket, I think that is the one that is most likely to invite closer examination by the SEC. Okay, great. So I think we've sort of covered a couple of the additional criteria you mentioned in particular, materiality. So it's not enough that the claim was potentially uh, misleading and it also has to be material. The other question that I have for you on this is, sort of what mens rea there needed to be. So, you know, does it have to be that Facebook was intentionally misleading investors and the public or is, you know, uh, recklessness or negligence in sort of not looking closely enough at its figures and making sure that they were absolutely correct before it went public with them? Like what kind of uh, level of knowledge on Facebook's part would the SEC have to be able to demonstrate to bring a claim? Well, great, great question because then we really start to get into which of the potential statutes and rules under the statutes would be implicated. You know, for there to be an allegation of fraud, there would need to be intent. Again, there often is some confusion about, you know, what is the role of the SEC in the sense of, you know, it is a civil regulator, a civil enforcement authority. So in its civil litigation, the burden of proof is the same as that that attaches to any civil litigation. Proof beyond a preponderance of the evidence, 50% plus one. And that's even true when, when we're talking about intent. But in order for there to be a securities fraud charge, 
a violation of whatever we like to talk about as 10B, the anti-fraud provision of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 and Rule 10B-5. There, there needs to be intent or ironically, as what we're discussing here, and you and never hear this really discussed much, is deliberate ignorance. You know, there is a concept in the law that really goes to what we're what we're discussing here, although one that you don't see much, you know, often discussed in the in these contexts of deliberate ignorance, which depending on which United States circuit you're in, it's called deliberate ignorance, conscious avoidance, or willful blindness. And it's the notion of the ostrich head in the sand. That could be a substitute for intent if the board has acted from a perspective of, or leaders have acted, or those responsible for disclosures, I should say, of from a perspective of deliberate ignorance. But your question also went to negligence. Under the Securities Act of 1933, which is actually the securities law statute that provides the basis for the corporate disclosures under what's known as Regulation SK, that's S hyphen K, then while there is an intent element within Section 17, which is the anti-fraud provision of the Securities Act of 1933, but there is also a negligence provision such that you know the SEC could charge a fraud violation under the 33 Act, as we call it, if there is negligence. But there's one other area that we need to look at, which is the actual disclosures. In other words, if a company is failing to keep books and records or publish, you know, make public filings that are otherwise violative of the disclosure provisions without the SEC charging fraud or negligence, those really are more in the area of strict liability in the sense of there was a disclosure obligation, you violated it. You misstated your financial statements by you know, X millions of dollars, but it was not intentional. And there was a lot of interpretive deliberation that gave rise to the ultimate disclosure or something was missed. You know, So within the disclosure regime, there is the basis for what I've called more of a strict liability standard for disclosure, but that would be for a more technical violation under the disclosure rules themselves, moving away from the issue of fraud, which is often what is contemplated when people think about you know, SEC violations. So literally, as we are recording this, uh, the New York Times just reported that Facebook has told its employees to preserve all communications from 2016 going forward pertaining to its business for uh, legal reasons. So just flagging that. But I also wanted to ask whether the SEC would confirm if it has decided not to investigate. I guess to, to put it another way, you know, you've set out what I think is a pretty compelling case for why we might not expect anything to come of this. Should we be waiting around for a kind of a thumbs down from the agency? Or would the answer just be, you know, if we don't see something, no news is good news as far as Facebook is concerned? Well, I mean, we could transfer that conversation into GameStop as well. I mean, the SEC never acknowledged, you know, that there was an investigation into GameStop. It looked into issues around trading 
So the answer to your question is the SEC's investigations are non-public. So the SEC never acknowledges whether there is or is not an investigation. So it's not about a thumbs up or thumbs down from the SEC, because the only way we will ever know that the SEC brought a case, although there was one instance, I think, where the SEC actually said, you know, it has closed the investigation. I think it was an in- the insider trading investigation involving certain members of Congress who traded early on in COVID. And there was a question as to whether they were trading while in possession of material non-public information. And I think the SEC, if I remember correctly, did make a disclosure that those investigations were closed. But that is an absolute rarity. To your question, the SEC will not make a statement now. So how do we know? And I want to come back to your, you know, it's always nice to be part of breaking news because then you get to comment on something that's you know, happening right now. So I'll come back to uh, the document preservation notice that you referenced. But if Facebook were to make a disclosure that the SEC has initiated an inquiry, an investigation into whatever issue, and let's assume it's even this issue specifically, Facebook will have created for itself a duty to update. So your logical next question is, so does Facebook have an obligation to disclose the existence of an SEC investigation? The answer is no. And the case law is very clear on that point because what the SEC is doing as a civil regulatory agency is conducting an independent fact-finding investigation. Now, there is a disagreement depending on the circuits as to if at the end of an investigation, the SEC determines that there may be a violation and issues the Wells Notice, which I referenced before, which gives a company an opportunity to persuade the SEC why there was no violation of the law, then some circuits say that should be disclosed if a company has disclosed the existence of an investigation then there is an, I would say there's an affirmative obligation to amend that disclosure, which would be in a Form 8K or the next public filing, depending on the timing, that it had received the Wells notice. But going back to where I started, you know, there is no obligation on a company to disclose an investigation, even if the investigation is a formal investigation, one in which the SEC would issue subpoenas. But once it takes upon itself the disclosure, then it has an affirmative duty to update. But interestingly, you mentioned that they issued to all of its employees a document preservation notice. That document preservation notice would not necessarily have anything to do with the SEC. If the SEC had issued a document request or a subpoena, regardless of whether Facebook does or does not disclose something like that, that would be grounds for the issuance of a document preservation letter or notice internally at the company. But a document preservation notice could also be implicated by a notice by a plaintiff's governance law firm that that has put the company on notice that it plans to bring a derivative action. It could relate to any investigation, even one from the Federal Trade Commission, which, to go back full circle, which is where I think an investigation, if there is one, would more likely be conducted. Okay, so that's excellent. I think 
as we move towards the end of the interview, it would be great to sort of zoom out a little bit and talk about the bigger picture beyond these particular complaints and this particular set of documents. And I think we are kind of in this moment right now where lots of people are looking for levers to pull to rein in big tech, you know, not just Facebook, but uh, many of these companies. And we're seeing uh, regulators all around the place trying to maybe push their authority into into new realms to sort of see if we can find new ways of dealing with these new problems. Um, as we mentioned earlier, maybe Congress is going to do something to help. But, you know, I, I wonder whether, you know, if these claims aren't going to get off the ground, as it seems that you're, you're pretty confident that the, these aren't the ones, um, whether we're in a new era in some other way. So, you know, there's a new chair of the SEC who took over in April under the Biden administration, Gary Gensler, and some of the commentary that I've read around this has emphasized the fact that he and the commission under um, with him at the helm is intending to take a, a stronger and more aggressive uh, enforcement stance and that to take a broader view of, of corporate responsibility, not just looking at these very sort of narrow questions of financial statements, but also these broader things about social issues. And I'm wondering whether you have any views on that, whether there are other mechanisms for holding big tech accountable through the SEC, or whether you think that that's um, not really going to be the, the best lever to pull. Well, I, again, I, the, the fact that the SEC, the SEC brought a case recently, which was a very interesting case, given what we were talking about in terms of the SEC's case involving Facebook two years ago. In June of this year, it brought a case against First American Financial Corporation, which is a title company, where the SEC found that the company had inadequate disclosure controls and procedures where the company had revealed a cyber incident. But the difference is, if I remember correctly, in this in the Facebook case, you know, there was like a two-year period. And a lot of the SEC cases up until recently had involved a, a, a rather long period of how long the information had been known, when the company had disclosed. You know, in the first American financial case, you know, the gap between awareness and disclosure was less than six months. And the SEC nevertheless found the policies and procedures you know, inadequate. So disclosures around cyber and the process for companies making those disclosures, as well as reporting up within the company to enable timely and accurate disclosures, is certainly something that is of interest to the SEC. But I think, you know, more broadly, you know, we do have to think about what are all the jurisdictions and what are all the frameworks that potentially can be applied to the behavior of any social media platform. You know, and, but let's also not lose sight of the fact that social media platforms are used for manipulative purposes in the federal securities laws. So it's not just, you know, it's, it's not like we're only hearing about Twitter or Facebook read it in the context of, you know, of GameStop, but there are other regimes to consider. I mean, when the SEC first published its disclosure guidance around cyber in 2011, the California Consumer Privacy Act did not exist. GDPR did not exist in Europe. I mean, so we're talking about state privacy laws. We're talking about European privacy laws, some European countries um, with their data protection and other laws, you know, may 
choose to be more aggressive. I mean, California could look under its consumer protection laws, under under its very broad statutes. I'm certainly not offering an opinion under you know under California law, but to where your question started, I would say call your congressman, because really, I mean, it's it's an issue that's on the plate of Congress. It's an issue that you know as we move into an election year. You know, members of Congress are looking for opportunities to, you know, to carry the flag on an issue of, of social importance, you know, something of concern more broadly in society. So, yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of a lot of activity, and we're going to see many complaints involving other companies, probably Facebook again. You know, you know, to the SEC under under other circumstances. I think that's just that's just a fundamental reality of being big tech, being big social media. The bigger concern for me is not the altruism, but it's you know the comfort and the lack of I'm going to use the word remorse about taking information that is proprietary to a company. And using that for personal gain, and you know that's certainly an element of this because you know why not just go to Congress and say here's the information, you know this may interest you. Why go to the SEC first, but for the whistleblower program? You know what was Panama Papers? It was taking information from you know from law firms and publishing it. There are more and more examples of that occurring, and I think that will continue to occur until such time as whether it be the states or the feds, you know, recognize that, you know, there is another side to the coin. I'm not advocating widespread prosecution, but the fact is, I think there has to be an acknowledgement that corporations are entitled to protect their trade secrets, their assets, their information, and employees sign confidentiality provisions. And let's not lose sight of the fact many employees, when they become whistleblowers, could well be violating those confidentiality provisions. Well, I think we'll have to end it there. I should say, unfortunately, neither Evelyn nor I have members of Congress because I'm a D.C. <laughs> resident and she's Australian. But listeners, you you heard the man. Call your members of Congress. Jacob, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks for the invitation. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes on the Lawfare podcast feed and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer was Hamza Shitu. Our producer is Jen Pachahowell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com backslash lawfare. And as always, thanks for listening.